A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This series is produced by Authentic, a full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. We work with forward-thinking developers and property managers to create and then capitalize on demand for their properties. Our team at Authentic is built specifically for the commercial real estate industry, and we plug in every step of the way. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else we should have on the show, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Katie McCammett, president at Cohousing Solutions. Katie brings the depth and diversity of her 35 years of experience as a developer, architect, and co-housing resident to benefit her clients. She's a co-author of Co-Housing, a contemporary approach to housing ourselves, the book that introduced co-housing to North America, and more recently, Creating Co-Housing, Building Sustainable Communities. She co-founded McCammon and Durrett Architects and the co-housing company with Charles Durrett. More recently, she started Co-Housing Solutions as a development consulting firm to share best practices and systems for successful collaborative development. She works with urban, suburban, and rural communities all across North America, helping them define and implement their development strategies and build the professional team they need. She also founded the 500 Communities Program to train other professionals to work in this realm. Katie lived for 12 years at Doyle Street Co-Housing in the San Francisco Bay Area and now lives at Nevada City Co-Housing in the Sierra Foothills. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Okay, so Katie, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I, I really want to start with your upbringing and specifically your unique upbringing with your father's career. And I, and I want to uh, set the stage with how that impacted the nuance of these different types of communities that you grew up around? Yeah, it's an interesting question. My father taught Latin American politics at the Graduate School of International Studies in Denver. So he had a great distrust of uh, dictators, as one might rightly have if you study Latin American politics. So I grew up with a great distrust of anybody telling me some, what I should do right? That you really had to think for yourself. And a lot of the communities movement is about following leaders. And I never had any interest in that kind of community. So I think that's sort of steered me much more toward equalitarian communities or, you know, where there are no leaders. Right. And specifically, you were able to, I think when I am thinking about sort of the nuance of that upbringing, you were essentially living on campus or around campuses as you grew up. And I think that that's very different from a lot of our upbringings, which is, you know, single family homes, maybe in neighborhoods, fairly disconnected from large groups of people, certainly not, you know, fully integrated with like different types of thoughts and thought leadership in a way that you might on a college campus. Do you feel like that is something that impacted this community mindset from the very early days? Um, or, or how would you sort of describe that as a, as a youngster? Well, my first earliest uh, memories are living in graduate student housing. I mean, so they were cheap little barracks at University of Washington, but there were always kids around to play with, right? So you just kind of literally walked. There was, they were these duplexes around uh, asphalt courtyard. But for a kid, it was fabulous. 
because you just ran outside and there was always something to do. There was always someone to play with. You could borrow somebody else's bikes. You could go on adventures. So that sort of easy access to other people that weren't play dates, that wasn't scheduled, was, you know, the way I grew up and the way I thought everybody grew up. Yeah. And I'm obviously in the Denver area myself, and you mentioned um, an area on uh, Jackson Street between Iliff and Yale for anyone who's familiar with the area and kind of the DU uh, University area. That's really cool. And you were there, I think you said through high school, and and afterwards you worked uh, a few different jobs east of Denver, near Castle Rock, and so forth. That sounded like a really interesting time for you, kind of like figuring things out and sort of like exploring different parts of the world. What was that phase of life like? What did you get into? What were those jobs that you were uh, digging into? Literally, I said that with pun intended. Yeah, well, we actually moved to Jackson Street because when we visited the house there, there were all these kids on the street, right? And so it was like, well, that's, you know, I was the oldest of, of four kids. And again, that sort of life on the street. And I often, I often feel like I was the last generation that really grew up with that partially because women were working at home. First of all, families had a lot more kids, right? I was the oldest of four. We were a small family. Today, that would be considered a large family in most places. So there were a lot more kids. Uh, moms were home. You didn't do play dates. You didn't do after-school activities. You just came home and mom sent you out the door and said, uh, come home for dinner. And that was kind of it. So, you know, I grew up we're running in and out of neighbors' houses, you know, getting fed wherever you got fed, playing kick the can till dark. And that the freedom of, you know, of just kind of laying around and making up stuff. So that, again, you know, that sort of sense of uh, that that really felt like the way childhood should be. And I think in modern life, life it's actually really hard to find that. Yeah, agreed. And so did did those early um, early jobs after high school stem from that mindset of, you know, I want to have freedom. I want to be around, you know, kind of continuing this, this theme of community. Is that why you found yourself working in landscaping and kind of around other people that had this sort of uh, tendency to be gravitating towards community like that? Well, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I was, I, I had, my other drive was design. So I was uh, very interested in dance. I did a lot of choreography in high school. And then I found myself working as a landscaper and landscape design and driving a big two and a half ton truck and a tree, a tree spade and, you know, bringing in the, the Great Plains and the Ponderosa out there into the growing Denver suburbs. So, and I think it was in that process that it felt like, gosh, it seems like all we're trying to do is cover up these ugly new buildings with as much landscaping as possible. Mm. Maybe we ought to get to the buildings. So that's what eventually led to architecture school. Yeah. The desire to kind of get to the heart of it. Of course, this was, you know, this was the passive solar 70s. So I hung out with a bunch of carpenters and we read Mother's News and, you know, how to build solar buildings. And and so that was the other influence in there. So you, you just started to touch on it. But looking back, this draw to architecture, and I think this was, you would say, before you even really understood what the architecture field really was all about. Uh, you were working as a landscape installer. You um, you called it yourself kind of a windy road as you're sort of figuring out you know, your passions. 
And um, you said something about math and sociology actually being these really high scores that you would always get on those tests in, in school. And, but, and yet no one had really suggested design or architecture to you. Looking back, what, what do you feel like eventually drew you into that field of architecture? Yeah, no, I, when, you, when I look at my you know, strengths in high school, it's like, why didn't anybody ever suggest this? This seems like such an obvious thing, but nobody ever suggested it at all. And so it was a wine. I didn't know any architects. I didn't have anything to do with that world. And so I would say the thread was design, choreography, graphic design, landscape design into architecture. And then, you know, and then my personal experience was just a real interest in neighborhoods. And I've always been a people watcher ever since, you know, I was a little kid who would sit and watch people and kind of, so that combination. And I think Eventually, and really one of the things that I really found in my studies in Denmark was just a real emphasis on how the built environment affects how people act and live. And and we're so unaware of how the built environment affects our day-to-day lives. So that once once I found that, I was totally hooked. Yeah. Tell the listeners a little bit about that that first study abroad in Denmark. I mean, that, that seemed to be a massive turning point for you, certainly in your career, but kind of in, in the, uh, in the sense of that your eyes were wide open, um, after experiencing that first visit, what was it about that initial visit that really kind of got your, your gears turning? Yeah. That first year. So it's a Danish international studies program. I talked myself into, I was coming out of a graphic design program trying to get into architecture. And this was very much an architecture program. So it was mostly guys, mostly guys with a lot more experience than me. I mean, first of all, living in Copenhagen. I mean, you know, what? Uh, there is no more livable city. It's truly amazing to, you know, live in a city where, where as a young woman, you feel really safe and just so walkable, bikeable. So that, that was a big influence. But also, if you study um, if you study architecture in Denmark, you study the history of housing development in Denmark. And going back to uh, getting people out of the tenements in the 1850s, it's been there's been a very deliberate evolution and study about how neighborhoods and housing affects people's health, how they raise their kids, how much fighting, and how many divorces. And so there's been this, you know. 150 years of analysis about how the built environment and particularly housing affects people. And that was really powerful to, to learn about and to really see the, you know, direct data, not just theories, but really that they had done the studies and that it had really turned around and directly affected how they built social housing and how they did their zoning because of that. So yeah, that had a huge impact. And then that's where I was first introduced to co-housing. Um, the first communities were just being built. And so that was like, oh, oh. and I, <laughs> I thought, well, if I'm hearing about this, I'm sure everybody back in the States already knows about that. Certainly anybody in architecture school would know about these communities. And uh, when I got to UC Berkeley, I realized nobody knew about them. There was like this little Danish secret. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was hard to get any information outside of Denmark about them. Yeah. I want to back take one step back and, and mention this. Uh, I coined it the fourth floor study. And it's something that you you mentioned to me again in some of our earlier conversations. So I thought it was very interesting and it makes perfect sense. And I don't know if this was a, a Danish study or, or where it came from. 
Uh, but can you describe that to the listeners? Um, this idea of kind of community, co-housing, walkability, uh, it all kind of ties together with just like the the usability of a of a city or a town. And I thought this this fourth floor marker was really fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, in the 60s, a lot of social housing and public housing was becoming high-rise housing. And so there was, that was sort of the general trend. And in Denmark, there was one or maybe two television stations. So this was all long before I was there. But people, all sorts of people still talked about it. You know, you didn't have to be an architect to talk about it. I got told the same story so many different times that there had been a study about how people raising kids at different stories, you know, depending on the height of the building. And that after the fourth story, that people were much less likely to take their kids down to the playground, that there was much less connection between the outdoors and therefore the health of the family. And because there's only one or two television stations in Denmark at that time, they did actually, I think, a series of a couple of big episodes on that. And the whole country saw it because that was what there was to watch on TV that night. So it really changed and affected um, housing policy. And from there on, they really went, they were really advanced in the low-rise housing. So social housing, there are very few high-rise housing developments in Denmark. Mm. And they really kept it sort of much lower rise, you know, density. They were definitely building with density. But because of the studies they did with sociologists really looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. So you ended up, you mentioned this a couple minutes ago, but you ended up at UC Berkeley for architecture. um, And you found yourself diving deep into a community project. I think it was your final semester. Um, It had to do with tenant organizing and tenant-built landscape projects. But there was a a rent-up of a Section 8 housing project that you were working on. And you had some good kind of retrospects about that and how that sort of lit a fire for you with regards to co-housing in the States and some of that lack of knowledge and understanding about co-housing. Can you set the stage for us um, about that period and kind of how that leads into your career at large? Yeah, I did. It was a year long. Uh, I was an internship and I, I took my internship at Mission Housing in, the, in San Francisco as an affordable housing developer. You know, typical of affordable housing projects at that time, they always ran out of money by the time they got to the landscaping. So you would find, you know, pretty interesting Section 8 housing around courtyards was pretty common, but there was no landscaping at all. And so um, as an intern, they tasked me to do some tenant organizing, reach out to the tenants, help to build tenant organizations. And because of my background and my, I I had studied projects like this in Denmark, I said, well, can I do that as a a landscape improvement project? So what I did, you know, for a, a year there was I organized the tenants to come out and built, you know, improved their landscaping. We built trellises, planter boxes, uh, little fences so people could have their yards and really, you know, really brought people together around something they could build. And, you know, building stuff is very powerful. It's way more powerful than talking, right? So when you can bring people out together and they actually create something. So then that led, there was a new uh, project that was just finishing construction. And uh, I took those lessons into the rent up of that Section 8 project. 
And so we started with potlucks around each uh, stairway. When those families moved in, we'd do a potluck, get to know each other. And then we did, I did, I led another uh, landscape improvement project where again, the tenants helped to build it and we brought it, you know, so that they helped create something to improve their own environment. Yeah, really cool. Let's switch gears to what I'll call your first big career stop and maybe your, your longest stint within your career. Uh, but it was, it was, you joined forces with your ex-husband. Um, but first you decided to head back to Denmark again, really before that, uh, that group, that architecture firm took off. So tell the listeners about that experience. And, and again, maybe setting the stage for kind of the time period and, and what you were seeking going back to Denmark again at that time. You know, you've, you've been there once, you came back, you, you know, kind of cut your teeth in the architecture school, you had some hands-on experience, and now you're back in Denmark. Yeah, I think we, we realized that we knew a little bit about this idea, co-housing. And, and remember, the word co-housing didn't exist. It was both less gear. Yeah. We made up the word co-housing because we needed, right. we decided both less gear wasn't going to work very well. <laughs> and a lot of people don't know that, by the way. So co-housing, you know, it's, it's commonplace now, but when you think about where did co-housing and the term come from, it came from you. Yeah, yeah, we were yeah, like very cool. an English word. And it was actually yep. one of the Danish research uh, societies that said, we need an English word because we're, we're doing summaries in, Eng- in English. And what are you guys going to call it? So, so that was, yeah, so we made up the word. The Danish word is Bofleskeba, and that means living communities. So we were kind of playing around with different ideas from that. But I think, you know, we, it was this uh, sense that um, here we were in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were two things coming together, right? I mean, it was very much a combination of personal and professional. So on one hand, you know, we'd gotten married, we were looking at having a kid, and I couldn't figure out how could you have an architecture career and have a family in a healthy way, right? What's, you know, just, I was looking around, I was watching people around me and it was like, this looks crazy. And then I was at the same time working with these um, section eight low income housing developments. And it seemed to me that they had something going there because these were all courtyard developments. So the kids could just run out in the courtyard. It's like, well, that's, I like, you know, I would like to live there, but I have a UC Berkeley education and I probably could qualify, but I shouldn't qualify. That needs to be for people who don't have a UC Berkeley education. So part of it was looking at it personally, and then the other realizing that we knew enough, just enough to get ourselves in trouble, but we didn't really know how they were organized or how they really worked. So we took our pennies. I think we took a few shots at some grants. We had not gone back to graduate school. We didn't have a mentor. We couldn't get grants. So we just took our pennies and went back to Denmark and spent the next year talking to everybody and anybody we could get a hold of that had anything to do with the co-housing movement there. So government, architects, and then living in the communities and touring the communities. So I think at that point, we had actually probably visited more Danish co-housing communities than any Dane had. And that was an incredibly inspiring year. And that then became the basis of our book, which is what introduced the idea of co-housing to the English-speaking world. And that book is um, Co-Housing, A Contemporary Approach to Housing Ourselves. That'll be in the show notes if anyone wants to take a look at that. 
Um, and I remember some of the, the the takeaways from hearing about this story for the first time is, you know, this is a co-housing was a private endeavor in Denmark. And you thought to yourselves, this is something we could take back to the States. This could be applicable back in the U.S., and it's this idea of the private initiative and how do we do it? And, and it's kind of the, the same time that you, as you mentioned earlier, you kind of coined co-housing and wanted to bring that back to the States with all that you learned from uh, the Danes. And one of the things that stood out to me as a, as a millennial, late in the millennial, or I should say early in the millennial uh, bracket, you said co-housing doesn't need to be like your friends or your best friends. You know, it's actually harder to make it work with your good good buddies. But one of the things that you took away from that experience and all those tours, it seemed to be that it's really more about pooling together shared interests in people to create that community. I don't want to speak for you on that, but what did you what did you learn on when it comes to that side of the of the coin of co-housing? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that we really saw there with the Danish communities is people organizing with other people to create neighborhoods that weren't government subsidized, didn't take a government policy, and were middle-class working people. That it wasn't about, oh, this would be good for those poor people, which is what people told us when we first started talking about it in the United States. And I was like, no, it's about me. It's about, I want to live like this. So I think, you know, that they were, the first Danish communities were organized by young professionals who were like the single family gene just doesn't seem to be all it's cut up to be, you know, and particularly for women. I mean, I think, you know, the single family house is a real trap for women. And so looking at other alternatives where you can live the good life, but in a, in the way that we were really meant to live as people. So. Yeah. And we'll come back to that point about single family mothers and I, and I guess sort of the, young family as well. We're going to put a pin in that and come back to that in this conversation too, because there's a lot to unpack there. I think it's really interesting. So at this point, you've been in Denmark again for another year or so, and you're bringing back that knowledge to the US. And one of the things you told me right away was it was just impossible to get funding, kind of impossible to to do this in the way that you thought it could be done. So um, it became clear that it was maybe harder to bring to fruition than you had anticipated what were you learning at, around that time about how it all kind of worked in the United States? Yeah, so this is the mid-80s by now. Reagan's in power. They're slashing affordable housing budgets. So there's really no money for innovative middle-class housing at all. And so it, we pretty quickly realized that if we were going to launch this, it was going to be with people coming together, pooling their own funds, that it was going to be private money. Which is, I think, really interesting and in the long run, I think, really served us because we really had to prove to people that there was value, that this was, the one, that it was possible, two, that there was value that was more than getting the biggest house, that there was a different. And, and, I, and what we found was actually a ready market that people were actually, a lot of people were looking for something else. And that's what I heard over and over and over again. Oh, I've thought about this. I've talked about it with my friends. I, I just didn't know what to call it. I didn't know how to get started. I didn't know it was really possible. So we certainly weren't the first people to think about it. We just put a name on it and started a process that people could actually get it done. Yeah, and you you had uh, I think you said three something like three thousand books 
3,000 of your books in your basement and this, you know, those are kind of burning a hole in your basement floor, so to speak. And you needed to get out there in front of the people, convince people, talk to people. And you said you would speak anywhere. And that's really the early, those are really the early days and the seeds that were being planted in the mid eighties as you kind of started on this co-housing journey. You know, that seems intimidating to me just saying it out loud, but how was that for for you guys doing that? Uh, Did it seem exciting? Was it fun or was it sort of like scary? And what did we get ourselves into? Well, a little desperate because (laughs) just paying the rent was a real challenge. (laughs) And so the only way, you know, we had to get the books out of the basement and get people. I made my best friends buy copies of the book. They had volunteered hours and hours and hours in editing and helping us because it was self-published. This is the early days of self-publishing. And I didn't give away a single book. <laughs> you had to buy it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it was, you know, we just really needed to pay the rent. <laughs> so the other thing is what we really wanted to do was design communities. But you don't get to design communities till you've got an up and running group and they have land. And so we had to kind of figure out how to get them to those stages so they could hire us to actually design their communities. That actually dovetails into your role because you know the thread for you had always been design um, but you truly you've ended up as much more than just an architect you know you even though that's what your original passion was or original love was you found yourself as more than just an architect and maybe spoiler alert for those listening it, it wasn't all just about design as you just mentioned i mean there's land there's finance there's marketing there's underwriting and so much more how did you sort of like gobble up all of that knowledge and start to understand how to spin all of those plates for projects like that? By working it through in the trenches. You know, I mean, really, it, it was just a need, right? There was, it's like, okay, you know, I mean, Chuck's a pretty good architect. I could, you know, I could partner with him on the architecture, but somebody had to figure this other stuff out. And then as we started, like uh, our first co-housing project where we were really, you know, the lead in control was actually uh, Doyle Street co-housing in Emeryville. And our developer fell out on us. So we had just gotten planning approvals, had been denied at planning commission. We appealed it at city council. We won it at city council because we went door to door in the neighborhood and really brought people out. And then uh, the next day, our developer that we were partnering with called us and said, hey, you know, I've got this other project. It's not going very well. I don't think I can actually get the financing for this project. You're going to have to find some other way. Someone else would take it forward with you. So then it was literally out on the streets looking for a developer. So building budgets. I mean, I, I had a friend who would just was in the middle of the MIT real estate program. I called Josh and said, do you have a budget? Do you have a performa? <laughs> <laughs> can I get that spreadsheet? Right, Exactly. <laughs> So again, you know, it was it was kind of a desperation of like we got to get this thing off the ground here. So did eventually bring in another developer, but that's you know from the beginning it was like realistically, you know, I mean, design's really important, and it's the easy part, right? Where's the money come from? How much money do you need? How do you hold a budget? How do you get it through a planning commission? That's the stuff that I kept. How do you market it? Right. And so over the years, I just found that there were a lot of architects. You know, you could you could train an architect, you, you know, but if you didn't have someone who understood those other pieces, you weren't going to get projects built. So bit by bit, I got deeper and deeper into the development side. 
and eventually became a developer myself, uh, partnering with co-housing groups. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our company, Authentic, the full-service brand and digital marketing studio specializing in real estate development and leasing. If you weren't aware, I wanted to let you know about how our team adds value to all of your projects. Because Authentic has been architected with the entire real estate development lifecycle in mind, we sit in parallel with your strategy, marketing, rendering, digital, and leasing needs, beginning at day zero. To learn more about how we can help elevate your next project, or to keep existing projects stabilized, visit our website for more information at AuthenticFF.com. You know, let's let's pause for a moment and talk about just co-housing communities at large. I think there's a lot to talk about here. And I know you have some great thoughts on why they make great neighborhoods and why cities should encourage them, especially in the US where the single family home and, and some of these mass neighborhoods are being developed in a way that is uh, has become really problematic for society at large. Talk to us about co-housing and what don't we know? Why do they make great neighborhoods? Yes. I, you know, it's funny. I, I think that Americans are on one hand desperate for community and on the other hand, scared to death of it. And my, my theory is that if you dropped most Americans into the middle of co-housing community and they woke up there, they would say, wow, what a great place. But choosing it is very hard for people because we're very, very concerned about losing our autonomy. And I think, I think that's actually gotten worse with each generation because I feel like we're, we're raised with fewer and fewer community obligations. Whereas, you know, 100 years ago, you know, of course you went to church. Of course you showed up for the neighborhood potluck. Of course you helped raise the barn. But now it's, I don't think we even have those sort of expectations that people are growing up with. So I think that, you know, when I look at the history of humanity, it's like people have always lived in villages and tribes. The idea that an ever smaller family is supposed to take care of all of its needs mowing the lawn, maintaining the house, watching the kids is by itself is really kind of absurd. And that is the radical thing. That's the radical idea, the single family house. The idea that people live in communities where you kind of keep an eye out for each other, you work together on things of mutual benefit, that's ancient. That's the way people have always lived. So I think to me, you know, but my, but I, you know, I can really speak from my own personal experience. You know, it's a fabulous way to live kids, to raise kids. You know, once it's the, one of the only places you'll find that same sense of freedom that I grew up with, where you can just send the kids outdoor and sort of like, go, go find something else to do out there. And you know, you've got a lot of eyes on, they'll be safe. Uh, they'll find other kids, kids of different ages playing together. And that there's a spontaneous social life, right? That it's not all about appointments and play dates or, uh, at, or at any age, whether that's for a five-year-old or a 35-year-old, you know, that, that it's a spontaneous social life that you don't have to spend a lot of time organizing. Yeah. Truly, what you've said, uh, and we've had a couple conversations leading up to this podcast, but you know, these are conversations that I've actually taken back to my wife. And we've talked about this because I think you you hit the nail on the head and it strikes a chord. And I think, 
you know, I certainly was raised in single family homes. We didn't, you know, thankfully I was around, you know, some neighborhoods that had kids around and I had a few friends here and there. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized, and especially now that I have a family of my own, it is much more difficult to feel like you're connected to anything outside of your home unless you make significant effort to go out and find it or to stick yourself into some community. And um, one of the things that you mentioned when we spoke last time is that there's like there's a lack of a safety net for the society at large which is now turning into depression mental health issues and it's it's not all connected specifically to this idea of single family housing of course but i do think that that plays a large part in it and it's uh, it's definitely something that's got me thinking about you know with a young child now how do i make sure that we're not siloed you know, every day of the week and he's not getting out there to see the world and interacting with other kids and adults and situations. And um, I think it's very fascinating and a little bit sad too that the United States has come, has moved so far away from a sense of community when it comes to housing. Yes. And, you know, I mean, we're social beings, so most of us find some way to create a sense of community, but most of us drive to it. So, you know, you're going to be driving your kid to play dates. You drive to meet up with your friends. Your wife drives to meet up with friends for a walk or a hike. And so that's sort of the other side. So for me, it was always this dual thing of changing demographics in America and how do we adapt neighborhoods to meet those changing demographics. And on the other hand is, you know, I was driven to architecture because I wanted to save the world and use less energy and build solar homes. And I really feel like the the way that I can most impact sustainability is affecting the American middle class. It's not about the extraordinary building that nobody else can do again, but the American middle class and the lifestyle that we've all been told that we should be working really hard to achieve uses an enormous amount of the Earth's resources. I mean, every single person on the block's got to have their own lawnmower. Everybody's got to drive to pick up an onion instead of going and knocking on the door next door. And so those two things really came together for me in community of a better life that uses a lot less of the Earth's resources. So for me, that was like the magic combination of things. Mm hmm. And truly, it makes perfect sense. And I think one area that I'm, I've been particularly interested in is the marketing side of this. You know, I know of co-housing, but I don't know. I don't consider myself an expert on co-housing. Or you know, I've 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 learned a lot from in. Excuse me, I've learned a lot in conversation with you and from you. And I'm I'm just curious why why doesn't co-housing catch on, or why hasn't it caught on? And it seems to me like this should be an on fire topic in real estate for my generation and the generation behind me. And I'm scratching my head a little bit because you know you have conversations around density, you have conversations around, you know, single family, new builds for rent. You know, there's all these sort of like on fire topics right now. So it seems like maybe there's a marketing problem here and also an education issue here. I know it's more complicated than that, but but I would be curious to hear how you break that down and what you think about that. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I do think it's an education issue. And, and our success with the term co-housing, I had an interesting, I had some uh, master's students that were doing a 
they did a, a research project about 10 years ago, and they're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. So they, they asked around, and what they found in, you know, and this, of course, is Northern California, where co-housing is probably better known than most places. But what they found is everybody thought they knew what co-housing was. And very few people actually knew what it was. So the term is good and bad that way. It often gets confused with co-living, right? And so the idea of co-housing is that you have your own individual private home, that you still have that, whether it's a small one-bedroom, two-bedroom, or a big four-bedroom, that you have your own house. And so you have more balance between privacy and community with that. So, so on one hand, it's just helping people understand that, what you, know, what you really get, that you can close the door, you can pull back. You're not, you know, I cannot tell you, you wouldn't believe, Chris, the number of presentations I have done where I specifically show the private kitchen many times. And I get to the end of it and somebody raises their hand and says, oh, but I just can't imagine eating every meal with all these people. <laughs> it's like, well, I can't either. Yeah, it's not. It's I not summer camp. Do that, right? Yeah. So, so you know, so I think we we kind of have blinders on about what's possible, and we have a huge. You know, we have a hundred years of really strong propaganda for the single family house. So it's hard to break through that, and then the whole development process. I mean, is really designed around suburb about single-family homes. Now, I mean, even, even today, I mean, it's really shocking to me how few people are building condominiums in American cities. You can get dense rentals or you can jump out to the single-family house and there is so little being done in that missing middle in between. So people have a very hard time imagining this. And I would say the thing that I'm really shocked about that today... You know, I feel like I've been, well, I have been. I've been talking about co-housing for over 30 years, right? That families like yours, like it never, it's still a shock to every single couple, it seems, that has a kid and realizes, oh my God, this totally changes our life. <laughs> and not, you know, the kid's wonderful, but what we can do and how we, our day-to-day lifestyle has been changed and, and are we're still unprepared for that. I had a woman who was working for me last year and we had this conversation. A New York Times article came out about parenting and community and that really got a lot of conversation going. You know, she said, you know, we thought we were a real success story. We could afford a single family house. We could afford for me to stay home. And it was awful. I'd drive 45 minutes mm. for baby yoga just to connect with somebody else. <laughs> right. You know, and so I think, it's still a surprise to most young parents how isolated you are so quickly. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's something that, that pandemic working oh, from yeah. home and it just gets worse, right? It just builds on itself. So yeah, it, I can check all of those boxes confidently and say it was during the pandemic. You know, X, Y, and Z, and and it's it's something you you can prepare for as much as you want, but you don't. You just don't know until you know, and and once you're in it, you're in it, right? And there's no turning back, and it's a thing. Like I said, we've talked about it quite a bit and it's something where, you know, making sure uh, we find ways to stay connected and have community. And obviously we're not living in, in co-housing, but it, it everything you're saying again, just, just makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of sense, especially for young families. It's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's interesting because community means the most to people 
when you're kind of stuck at home. So that's sort of young families with young kids and older people or teens. Teens are the other ones who kind of really get screwed by our car oriented world is there, unless you live in the city with good bus system, you're really isolated, right? Um, and so there, in between times, you have a lot more mobility, and I think you don't notice it as much. And that's the beauty of the intergenerational community. I mean, we really, we really see two strong markets that really push co-housing forward. So one is young families. The problem with young families is you don't have any time to think. So it's a harder, like, oh, yeah, now I'm supposed to start organizing meetings to organize a community, right? That's a, mm-hmm. a hard time to take that on. But the other thing we, you know, we really see a lot of interest is from older people who do have more time to think. You know, there's this moment when you're looking at retirement and all of a sudden the world opens up in a different way and you could live anywhere. And so it, there's, and there's a little more time in your life at that stage to be more deliberate about, well, you know, do we want to move to a 55 plus community or do we want to stay in our house? Or do we want to, you know, what do we want to do? And so that's who's really driving the co-housing movement today is people looking at retirement and looking for other options and what's out there. Let's not necessarily put a pin in that, but let's, um, let's transition into the 500 communities program you started because I think it, it speaks directly to what we were just chatting through, which is miseducation and maybe misunderstanding about co-housing at large and how the 500 Communities Program was uh, started to help combat that in some ways. Now, I know that you do quite a bit of development consulting work, and I think we could probably have a separate podcast for all the cool projects that you've been working on there. But let's focus on the 500 Communities, uh, this 500 Communities Program. Uh, Tell the listeners what that is um, and, and how that fits in today. Yeah, the 500 Communities Program is a program I offer every other year. It's a year-long training for people who want to work in what I call collaborative development. So I I just feel like there's a lot of lessons learned in the co-housing development process. It could be applied in a lot of different ways. I can share everything I've learned over the last 30 years. Who knows where it will go, right? It's not up to me to determine the future. So I'm, you know, it's, you know, both people on the sort of hard knocks of development, project management, budgets, development side, as well as the marketing side. And the great thing about the program is the crossover between those. So, and then also really building a community of professionals that can support each other, share ideas, bounce ideas that are really looking at the business model. Because, um, you know, there certainly aren't nearly enough many, enough co-housing communities built, but the ones, you know, there's a lot built and they're, and they're working fabulously. So I feel like we've gotten pretty good at how to build good, solid communities that maintain themselves well over time, but it's still very, very limited. You know, developers haven't come into the realm. There's very few professionals who, you know, see this as a possibility. So that's what I, I'm really is trying to bring, you know, pass on the lessons learned that people, you know, I, I often tell both my clients and the 500 communities participants, let's improve on the wheel already made rather than reinventing the meal, the wheel over and over again. If I can give you my best of, you can take it to the next levels. But let's not just keep repeating the same old things, right? Let's keep getting better. So, so that's the 500 communities is to try to bring more people into this field and not necessarily that they... All they do is co-housing, 
but that it's one of the things they do and that they may see other ways that they could take that into other aspects of housing. It's how do you work with the buyer's group? How do you really get the best of, where's the value in that? How do you really create strong communities? Yeah. No, that's great. As we start to wrap up here, I I want to kind of get a sense from you about things that you're excited about in the coming year. I think there's a there's a conference coming up. Uh, there are some new opportunities for you. And there's some additional projects that you're working on right now on the development side as well. At this point, when we're recording this, mid-2022, mid, uh, um, when we look back on 2023 in the future, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? Yeah, yeah well, we're having our first in-person national co-housing conference in Madison, Wisconsin. What is it? The 24th, 25th, 26th of August. So, you know, for me, that's a combination. It's like an extended family reunion, connecting with new people or just getting into it, both professionals and clients I worked with years ago. So it's really energizing. And it is a great place, you know, it's where, you know, getting together in person, sharing experiences. And all of that is put on by the Co-Housing Association, which is our national nonprofit. And I, I really think the association's been absolutely critical and growing the movement and sharing the lessons learned. So that's um, so I'm very supportive of them and excited to be there and you know share what I have and, and learn from others. And where can listeners go to get more information about that organization? Yeah, the number one place to find out about co-housing is, is actually, I, I have a great website, but if you want to look at co-housing more broadly, I'd go to cohousing.org. There's information about, that's the association's website. So there's upcoming events, as well as the best directory of where you're going to find both existing and forming communities. So if you want to know, oh, is there a community where I live? That's the place to go is cohousing.org. Well, I want to hit you with a few rapid fire questions before we wrap up here. So not to put you on the spot, but the first one is the most exciting project you've seen in the last year. It doesn't have to be co-housing. It can be co-housing, of course. What comes to mind? Well, you know, I always have a problem with this question. It's tough. Um, <laughs> can't, you can't ever pick just one, right? Yeah, I can't pick just one. Because actually, to me, the most interesting thing is the breath, right? I mean, right now, I mean, I, I feel so lucky. After all these hard years of struggling through, I mean, my job is so fabulous. So on any given day, you know, I've got a senior co-housing group finishing construction in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, if they could do co-housing in Tulsa, really, you can do Tulsa, right? I have two agrihoods that are looking at how do we save farmland and cluster the housing so that we can save farmland and create community. And then I have a bunch of urban projects, a project here in West Sacramento that just broke ground a block from the Sacramento River. It's four-story, half an acre in the middle of a very walkable neighborhood. You can walk to Amtrak and the farmer's market. So to me, the interesting thing is the mix. You can take the same concept of people creating community and apply it at all these different densities. So, And I would say the thing that I'm really focused on is is how to bring the next generation in. Because I do think we have a crisis in housing. I think the affordability issue is huge. The last two years were really painful, you know, trying to hold these projects together with construction costs just zooming through the roof. And I think we as boomers have a real obligation to the next generation. So, you know, how do we break, you know, we've always depended on family 
as our support network, but families are smaller, you know, and there's an ever increasing number of single people. There's a huge number of single boomers that have no kids. How do we bring the next generation? I mean, I have a kid, but I can also, you know, I mean, I think just thinking about tribe in a different way that maybe isn't blood tied, maybe, you know, maybe there's other ways that we, that my generation can help the next generation come into this community world. Because, you know, I've lived in co-housing most of the last 35 years. I'm here to say it is a fabulous way to live. <laughs> yeah. So, so how about, how about education then? So what, what's a book or, or a resource that you would recommend to a listener right now who's, who's excited about this and they want to dig in deeper? What would you, where would you point them? Well, if you want to dig in deeper with co-housing, I would go to uh, my book written with my ex-husband, Creating Co-Housing, Building Sustainable Communities. That's sort of the updated version with the American experience. Our original book was only Danish communities. So now it's, we've got lots of Danish of, of American experience. And then, you know, I was really inspired by the work that looked at how physical buildings. So there's a great book, Jan Gale out of Denmark. It's been around for a long time called Life Between Buildings, where he really did the study of tracking where do people go? Who do they connect with in a neighborhood? You know, so this it's always been this crossover between the built environment and sociology is sort of where. So Bowling Alone is another fabulous book in terms of really looking at how things have changed. And for the listeners, we're going to have all of these in the show notes. So if you, uh, if you missed a title, we'll have all of them in the notes. Just go ahead and find those and, and tap on those links and we will uh, make sure we get to the right books. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. There's only one more thing to do right now, and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online and, and follow up with you. Yeah, no, and I'd love to talk to anybody. So my company is Co-Housing Solutions. So you can find me at my website, Co-Housing Solutions. So cohousing-solutions.com. And uh, yeah, we're, I'm very interested in, you know, I work with forming communities. That's my work. They, I'm usually the first one they hire, you know, how to, okay, let's see where you are, what you've got. Let's, let's, you know, what do you need? How do we move you forward? And then, of course, anybody interested in considering the 500 Communities Program, in 2023, we'll start recruiting for the next class and have a series of introductory webinars introducing that program. So got to be a, on our mailing list to get notices of those. Okay, very cool. Katie, thank you so much again for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Always fun to talk about this stuff. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic, the full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. Visit us online at AuthenticFF.com. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash podcast or simply subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.